Hey guys, my name is Alex, and you're listening to the Thousand Movie Project Podcast. I mentioned a few days ago that in order to make some quick cash for my rent this month, I picked up a few extra serving shifts at the restaurant where I normally work as a bartender. And I mentioned some anxiety at the idea that there's a slight step down in status, at least in my mind, when you go from being a bartender to being a server, because when you're a bartender, you get to stand around and trade pleasantries with the customer, you can have an actual conversation, but... When you're a server, on the other hand, you're just kind of like bouncing around, you're taking orders, dropping food. It's more anonymous. You aren't as seen as you are when you're a bartender, which feels like a really silly thing to be concerned about when you're just like in a desperate sprint to raise some money for rent. But anyway, something I hadn't given much thought toward as I was embarking on this week of basically just nonstop server shifts is how nice it is to be anonymous now and then at the restaurant, to not have to perform as a bartender. And I've found in these past couple serving shifts that it's actually easier to sustain my mood, my general buoyancy, when I'm not like st stuck in one place, like behind the bar, having to laugh at people's stupid jokes or explain the menu. Although as a server, the menu becomes its own kind of problem. What I've learned as a server is that people want to have a menu, but they don't really want to look at a menu. They have this kind of weird, squinty engagement with it. And there's one particular thing that happens almost every time I'm on table service. What'll happen is a family will sit down and, and they'll ask for a menu. So I bring them the menu. Then they study the menu for like an intense two or three minutes. They set it down on the table, pick it up again and study it a little bit more. And then when they're done, they wave me over. I approach the table. Hey guys, what can I get you? And then with a big smile and a whole lot of confidence, they order something that is not on the menu. Uh, yeah, um, I'll have a Hawaiian pizza. We don't have Hawaiian pizza. You've been studying that menu like the Talmud for about 10 minutes. I don't- well, how did you choose the one thing we don't actually have? I know it sounds like a joke, but I'm not exaggerating. It happens every single week, and I don't even work that many days of the week. And it's happened- and this is a- like, if you- if you have a background in psychology or sociology, and you're listening to the show, please point me toward whatever like theory or phenomenon might explain this thing where people routinely study a menu for several minutes and then they look up and order something that is not on there. It's like they're writing in an answer on a multiple choice exam. It's like if a sex worker said to you, hey, would you rather have, would you prefer a blowjob or a rim job? And then you were like, um, scrambled. By the way, did you know that 13,000 Americans wrote in the name Harambe on the ballot for the presidential election in 2016. 13,000 people left their house, traveled to their nearest voting station, waited in line, snickering to themselves the whole time, and then they stood in their voting booth with their, with their little Bic pen, and when they got to the part of the ballot that said, who would you like to be president of the United States, they wrote in, T. He. The dead monkey. Fully aware that nobody would even laugh at their joke. That the only person who would ever know about it was some tired ballot reader in Arizona who wants to be dead. And then, of course, the voter themselves. It's a big, elaborate joke that only they 
will ever enjoy. For the past five years, I've gotten angry whenever I thought of a person doing that, let alone the fact that 13,000 people did that. But now, as I approach the 100th episode of this podcast, where I get stoned in my room and curl up in front of a microphone and giggle at my own jokes, I realize, fuck, I am that guy. Another pet peeve similar to the Hawaiian pizza thing, but and just, and just as common, is people will come into the restaurant, they study the menu, and they hold the menu up to their nose, and they squint at the options, and they chew their nails. But apparently, it doesn't mean shit, the fact that they're studying it so closely, because they'll study it intensely for two or three minutes, and then they look up at me with a smile, and they say, Hi, yeah, I'll have a Supreme. What is a Supreme? That word does not appear on the menu. Shoes? Are you referring to the clothing label? Have you come to this pizza parlor? in pursuit of a backpack. Also, I understand that it is a bit strange for an Italian restaurant to not serve pasta, but it is not as weird as people make it out, as our customers make it out to be, because the word pizza is in the restaurant's title, and, and we have a lot of that, like more than you could eat. But still, every week, at least one person comes in, looks at the menu, then puts it down, smiles at me, and says, Yeah, I'll have the spaghetti. Don't have that. It's not on the menu. You looked at the menu, didn't see that word, but you ordered it. And when I say that, they fucking recoil. Like, it's heresy. And then they'll be like, You don't have spaghetti at an Italian restaurant? No, we don't have spaghetti. All, all we have here is boiled mice. I don't know if you saw the sign out front. It's literally all over the menu. Sometimes when I tell them that we don't have spaghetti or Hawaiian pizza or a supreme pizza, like, they look back at the menu with their brow furrowed as though the menu lied to them. Which is part of why I'm eager to read some kind of psych paper about this phenomenon, because it seems like a menu is some sort of Rorschach document, where people just project whatever's inside them, like they see a spaghetti option because they feel some kind of emotional entanglement inside of themselves. But anyway, speaking of emotional entanglement, another thing I remembered about being a server, but I'd kind of put it out of my mind, is is this phenomenon, I may have talked about it in one of the earlier episodes, where you don't, you don't really talk with the customer, you don't really get to know them, but you glean little things about people's lives. You catch a suggestive little detail here and there about their interactions with each other or something they're wearing or some affectation. And then as you're gliding around the restaurant, serving four or five tables at a time, you can get caught up with the idea of all these different kinds of people from all these different walks of life sitting together here in this one room eating pizza. And it just feels kind of weird and spacey, but it's also super like emotionally taxing. Yesterday, and these are details um, that could probably give away who these people are, especially if you live in my area, so I know I'm staking my job on this episode, but frankly, it's about time I jump ship because I'm really not making any money there. Anyways, but so this is the arrangement that I experienced on Thursday night as a server. The first table I got on Thursday night was a woman with her three kids. She pulls a couple of four top tables together and I approached and I said, hey, are you waiting for other people? And she said, yeah, we've got two more people coming and one's in a wheelchair, so we're gonna need a little bit of extra space if that's okay. Cool beans, not a problem. So I clear away a chair, I spread things out, and the woman is very mom. And I mean that in, in as the highest possible praise. Like she is on top of momming. Again, she's there with three kids. None of them is over the age of 10. 
She's listening attentively to one small daughter telling her, tell her it's a meandering story of something that happened on the second day of school, while at the same time helping her other small daughter fix some issue on her tablet, and meanwhile she's reaching out and correcting the behavior of this rambunctious small boy who appears to be the twin of the youngest girl. So she's doing a dozen things at once, and I'm, I'm setting up the table, and so I mentioned to her in passing, like, hey, our special tonight is two for one, on six ounce glasses of wine. And when I say this, she sighs. And she looks up at me like I've just brought a stone tablet down from a mountain and she goes, great. If it's buy one, get one with the six ounce, can you like just pour me 12 ounces of Cabernet in one cup? Yes, I can do that. And I go away and I do exactly that. Now the next table is a family of regulars. It's a family of four. The wife is in a wheelchair from a bad fall that she had a few years ago. I, and I, I've sat with this table. I've sat and I've talked with them a little bit in the past. And well, here's the very abridged story of, of her injury. It goes like this. One day, a few years ago, she took a bad fall from a great height and broke her spine. The doctor said, you'll never walk again. And this woman said, I, yes, I will. And so she fucking walks now. Like, she uses a walker, and there's, you know, this twist of effort in her face. But she fucking walks, and she and her husband have these two great little kids. Um, a little girl who's three, and a boy who's maybe, like, six. Anyway, the last time they were here, the little girl got super sick. And she was puking up her food, and the mom took her into the bathroom, and they spent most of their visit in the bathroom. I was serving them that time, and they told me that their daughter has an intestinal issue, and she can't eat any kind of roughage. Uh, no spinach, no lettuce, because it, it creates a kind of intestinal obstruction. There's a whole list of foods that she cannot eat. So they're, like, they're not in my section today, but I see them. So I go and I say hello to these people, and the little girl jumps out of her seat, and she runs up to me, and she hugs me, and she tells me that she loves me in this tiny voice, and then she tells me that she's a, she's a good kid, and everyone is in agreement with the fact that she's a good kid, and I, and I just don't know how to handle it. We can get into this some other time, but I'm rendered absolutely mute when speaking to children because on the one hand, they're completely on my wavelength. They'll walk up without any greeting whatsoever and they'll say, I like bananas. And right away I'm engaged and I'll say, yeah, I like bananas too, but for some reason banana flavored candy turns my stomach into a raisin. And then the kid will say, my parents are divorced. And I'll say, yeah, so are mine. It's annoying. But if it's any consolation, the reason that the divorce rate in America is, is so high is because most of the people getting married are very young and like they're too young for it. And so the difficulties that they experience in marriage, like it's largely attributable to inexperience and immaturity. So I hope you don't think that love is doomed or anything like that. And then the kid will say, I don't think love is doomed, but when I grow up, I want my car to be blue. And then I'll say, yeah, I thought the same thing when I was a kid, but then I got a, like a gray car from my parents as a gift when I was 17. And at first I thought it was kind of boring to look at, but now that I've gotten older, I realize it actually fits my personality pretty well. And I have a feeling I'm gonna stick to gray from here until the end of time. And then the kid will say, sounds good, bye. Good conversation, fucking right up my wavelength. I'm totally at home with it, but at the same time, I don't know how to engage them. Like they, if a kid comes up and starts talking to me, then I can go along with it. Cause other, but otherwise, like if you, if you, if you direct me toward the kid and you're like, go talk with Timmy, I'm like, hey Timmy, do you think the Cold War could have been avoided? But so this family sits down and I was like, hey, I remember she wasn't feeling well last time you guys were here. Did her stomach trouble go on for like the rest of the night after you left? And the mom goes, yeah, kinda. Like she's got an, she's got a disease 
in her intestinal tract. And that's why she's so small for a three-year-old is because she can't really eat that much. And when she was just a year old, she had the maximum amount of her colon removed that could be removed without resorting to a colostomy bag. So sometimes she goes on what they call bowel rest, where like she just doesn't eat any food at all for a day or two after a really bad episode. And yeah, last time we were here, it was a really bad episode. I think she had too much tomato sauce. And so for a couple days after that, um, she just like drinks a bottle of Insure for every meal and she's fine with that. She likes it. And I was like, Jesus, fuck, this is a heavy story. And, and they're telling me the story while the little girl is embracing me and I'm like crouched and I don't really like hold or interact with children. Like I'm giving her a hug and I feel her tininess, like both her natural tininess in, in the sense that like she's three years old, but also I like I've got my hand on her back and ju just, just the palm of my hand encompasses the entirety of her back and like with just the gentlest press for a hug, I can feel the outline of every rib in her back and she just feels so tiny and so delicate and she's saying these very sweet bubbly three-year-old things in like a baby voice this girl is a portrait of sunniness and innocence and friendliness and meanwhile her mom is telling me about the fucking incredibly brutal disease that she has a disease that has seemingly for all of its virulence it's done nothing to weaken her disposition, to make her any, to make her morbid at all. It was just really fucking heavy. Okay, back to table one. So the person in the wheelchair shows up, and it's a boy who's maybe 12 years old, and he's got this kind of twisted posture in the in the wheelchair that occasionally straightens, and he's mostly held upright in the chair by a, by a little seat belt that goes around his sternum, and he's being pushed along by an older woman wearing purple scrubs. The young man and his nurse join the table, and I walk back over there and I crouch down, and I ask him if he would like something to drink. And in response to this, his mom, who after 15 minutes is about halfway through her 12 ounces of wine, she says to her son, sit up, bud, sit, sit up straight, let him know what you want. And so the kid lifts his head off of his shoulder, and he kind of does this staggering trunk rotation toward me, and he says, I'll have a water. Like, perfectly clear, but uh, there's an obvious strain in his articulating it. And once he's got the word water out of his mouth, in unison, everybody at the table cheers him in like a soft, but genuinely enthusiastic way. There's no patronizing or anything like that. It's all very sincere, very earnest. And after that, he's, he's like glowing. He's got a big smile and he hoists himself up. He straightens his posture. And his mom commends him again. She says, great job. Keep your head up. Keep it up. You're doing a good job. And then she turns to me with a smile. And she says, it's been two years since we've been here. And he had a brain injury. And he is very far ahead of schedule and recovery. He's doing a great job. And then she looks at him. And she says, he can sit up just fine. But it takes a little bit of effort. And he gets a little bit lazy. But this is a good occasion. Come on, sit up. Tell." And so she asks him to tell me again. He looks at me again with this big triumphant smile. And he says, I'll have a glass of water. It's a little more streamlined this time, a little louder. And I've realized that when people are super forthcoming about issues that seem very touchy or intensely personal, it, I, it's stuff that feels kind of jarring. It's because they know that the issue is obvious. And they know that you, as the server who is interacting with them, they know that you, like everyone else, are curious. And also, I imagine many of them have realized that it it's toxic for everyone involved 
if if your response to a person's ailment is to try and pretend that the elephant is not in the room. It's happened a few times since I've started working at the restaurant that someone just presents me with their medical issue. Um, and it does feel kind of jarring on occasion because I'm like, I'm kneeling down to ask if they want Coke or Sprite. And they're like, ah, my son had a brain injury. <laughs> like it's, it's very heavy. But then you realize that the reason they're divulging this intensely personal and traumatic thing is because they want you to feel comfortable. If you feel comfortable, they will feel comfortable. They want this to be on the table, so to speak. They want it to be, you know, up for conversational grabs. When I worked at Miami-Dade College in a tutoring center, and we would get a deaf or hard-of-hearing student into the lab for help, they would come along with a sign language interpreter, a small, bubbly woman named April who had a huge smile and hair down to her belt. And April, the sign language interpreter, she would always clarify when working with me or any other any other tutor that the tutor is supposed to direct their instructions, all their conversation, toward the student. So what would happen is I... I would look at the student while speaking, and then she, the interpreter, she would sit beside me, facing the student as well, translating all along. And the student's eyes would dart back and forth between us. That was in the past, that was a different life, but now, working at the restaurant, there have been times when a party will come in, it's a whole family, and there's one person in the family who's in a wheelchair. But, it, but it's one of the more involved wheelchairs. It's got different rungs and pads coming up from different angles. And on several of these occasions, I will see that the person in the chair is emaciated. And maybe there's drool on their chin. They appear to be in like a borderline vegetative state. And they've got tubes in and out of them, and there's tape on various parts. I, like, I don't really know what's going on, but I, I see that they are encumbered with medical apparatuses? Apparati? But still, so they, they will... Uh, they will take their position at the table in that condition, but still, on the, on the basis of those sessions that I would have with the sign language interpreter over, over my seven years working at Dade, um, when she would impress upon me the importance of not making this disabled person feel as though they aren't in the room, or making them feel as though the people in the room are talking around them, Ever since, I had, ever since I had those encounters with her, I'm now very careful about directing my inquiries toward the disabled person. Dis disability in the sense of like there's a clear cognitive impairment. It's not like somebody walks into the restaurant on crutches and I turn to their spouse like, is he going to need a straw? But sometimes it seems to not be the right course of action. There have been several occasions where I have done this. I I've asked this uh, someone who looks severely disabled what they would like to drink or what they would like to eat, and the person doesn't respond. And then someone in the family as though they're burdened or exhausted by my gesture of speaking directly to this person, they'll brush the question away. And they'll say, oh, he, she's got her drink, don't worry. Or something along those lines. Something very hasty and abrasive and dismissive. And sometimes I recoil and I, I take everything super personally, so I'll get irritated about it. But then, upon further consideration, I get it. And it feels like a very delicate thing to articulate, but I can imagine that if you have a relative who is severely disabled, like they can't speak, they can't move, they're hardly conscious. I can, I, can, I can see how the caregiver's attitude toward that disabled relative, you know, when they're out for dinner with the rest of their family, is like, don't pay her any attention. I've got them taken care of, just focus on me and the rest of my family. Give us attention. Which is its own very dark thing to try to contend with, because like when I saw this mom with her four kids, one of whom has major special needs, 
one of the first things I would think of is like how hard it must be on the siblings because their brother is getting way more attention than they are and, and, and they might resent him for it and resent their parents for it. But the thing that, that doesn't gen generally occur to me is the mom herself. Like when was the last time their mother felt like she was really being noticed and paid attention to? But it's occurring to me now and as I see her in the course of 30 minutes nearing the bottom of her of her 12 ounce glass of wine, I don't know, it hits me in a hard way that I have to stop and tell myself, like, now's not the time to process this. Go to the other side of the restaurant and you find a family from Spain that visits quite often. I, th I believe they once mentioned that they own a home in the Gables and another in Spain. They come in, they sit down, and they order a huge amount of food. Two large pizzas and three large appetizers just for the four of them. And then I go back to table one. I get, the or I get their order, which is just pizzas. And the super mom that I mentioned, who's, who's juggling her attention pretty much evenly among her four children while simultaneously sustaining conversation with her son's nurse at the other end of the table, when I set down the pizzas, the super mom turns to me and she asks for another glass of wine with the meal. Same as last time, she says. The two for one deal, but can you pour both of them into one cup? And I can fucking do that. So I go to the bar and that's what I do. I pour two glasses into a single cup. Her third and her fourth glass together in other words, I kill the bottle that I opened for her just about a half hour ago. By the end of her meal, she has finished the entire bottle of wine by herself, and she is 100% the same person she walked in as. No slurring, no difference in how she moves or conducts herself among the kids. She's a f obviously a fucking supermom, but she's also not that tall a lady. I, I would be surprised if she was 150 pounds, so if she's drinking, an entire bottle of wine without exhibiting any discernible change in her behavior, I have to figure that she's like she's a practiced drinker, which not to jump at, at conclusions, but it seems to suggest that there's some pain there. But it's a, but it's a pain that she's managing because it doesn't seem like she's using the alcohol to escape her problem. It seems she's using the alcohol as a crutch to kind of prop her up and maybe to help her to endure this fucking carnival of attentiveness that's required of her. So she and the Spanish family ask for their checks at the same time. I take them their bills, and the supermom tips 20 bucks on a $100 tab, which is cool beans. But then the Spanish family tips like $8 on an even higher bill, which was the straw that broke my back and kind of tipped, no, no pun intended, kind of tipped me into this little existential torpor that then expanded over the rest of the night because there was this thunderstorm in Coral Gables and I only got two more tables over the next three hours. And I think I fell into this torpor by just thinking about the supermom with four kids, one of whom is recovering in a slow and tortured way from a terrible brain injury. She's drinking an entire bottle of wine into her tiny five foot five inch frame without any discernible change in her behavior. And then two tables over, you've got the mom with a serious debilitating spinal injury who is incredibly attentive to her three-year-old daughter. Her three-year-old daughter who is herself afflicted with a debilitating and life-threatening gastrointestinal issue. And then, at the far end of the restaurant, a Spanish family decked out in designer labels. They own two 
houses in what I imagine to be two affluent parts of the world, and who end up leaving a tip that suggests I'm bad at my job. What is more like, what it more likely suggests, like if I'm thinking of it in a level-headed way, is that they're stingy, or that they're spending more money than they ought to be spending. But for some reason, I guess it's because I was in this like pensive emotional state, I took their terrible tip super personally, and I like I saw their shitty tip as a reflection of my abilities as a server, which by the way shouldn't matter, <laughs> like because I'm not really a server, I'm a bartender. And in some respects, I'm, I'm not even that, because like I don't know how to mix anything except for a mojito, and I also don't really consider it like a vocation. I don't see it as my calling. I consider writing a vocation or, or storytelling, podcasting, whatever. But that was, I, like, I don't know. I just wanted to give a quick briefing on what it was like to do this whole serving thing again after after a long hiatus, despite everything that's going on, and I appear to just be in a mood where I'm like sharply attuned to the reminders that are like everywhere of the fact that life is fragile and that all you can do <laughs> is just try to get along. And it's finally an inspiration when I see these people who suffer incredible hardships in their daily life, but they manage to come out here at, to the restaurant and to have a very pleasant evening with their families in total defiance of, you know, the hardship of their situation. It's kind of like life handed them a menu and every option was just suffering and despair and limitations. And so they took the menu home and they read it very closely. And then they walked back out into the world and they ordered a Supreme. <laughs> <laughs>